Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of The Cheeky Natives. I'm coming to you live from Madison in Wisconsin, all the way in the US. And I've got a very special guest today. I know we say this all the time about our guests, but that's because our guests are always great. Um, And I have somebody who is quite esteemed and is quite respected and it's quite an honor to have her all the way from Madison on our podcast today. I want to welcome Dr. Ainihi Edward Lines on our podcast. Say hi. Hello. Hello. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. So I don't even know where to begin. All I know is black girls are slaying. It's pretty, pretty <laughs> cool. It's quite great to know that we've got so many amazing black women that are really doing the work of representation in in literature. So speaking of which, I was going to actually read out uh, Annie's bio, but wow, I just felt like I wouldn't have even been able to do you justice. So what we're going to do is we're going to have you just introduce yourself a little bit. Um, this might feel like one of those weird questions, those interview questions, tell us about yourself. <laughs> um, but just to give our readers a sense of who you are, what do you do, and why this work is so important. Um, thank you very much, Alma, for having me. Um, I am a fan of Chiki Natives, and um, it's an honor to be here. I am an assistant professor of English yes. at um, University of Wisconsin-Madison in the English department, and I teach and research on African literature, writing on social media, and political theory. I run a um, literary news site called Bristol Paper. I think of it kind of as Africa's go-to site for news updates um, on literature and African literary culture. Um, That's pretty much it. All right, so you've said a little bit about Bristol Paper, um, but tell us where the name comes from why you decided to start the bristle paper there's quite an interesting story as to what was happening around the time that you started bristle paper so i think just for our listeners we're quite curious to know why it's called bristle paper and um why you started it and also just what is really the focus the main focus of of bristle paper um bristle paper started in 2009 um it was sorry 2010 um, it was the end of my first year in graduate school at Duke University. Um, I was doing my PhD there. And um, I had had a really difficult year. Exciting, but very difficult, overwhelming. I did a lot of reading. I just thought that there was so much information you know, to process as a graduate student. And I wanted to start this blog as a way to process what I was working through in my classes um, and so the site started out as a literary and philosophy blog mainly general interest stuff mm-hmm. i would write poetry i would write um essays um and but everything was inspired by courses i was taking so when i was taking um a class on um on existentialism you would see stuff like that there when I was taking a class on Nietzsche and Wagner you will see stuff like that there um, and I kind of did that until 2012 when I decided to rebrand the site and make it into an African literature centered site and the reason I made that change was in part because I 
felt that there was a need for a discursive space for African literature. So, you know, you have the New York Times of the world, you had lots of just rich literary spaces um, where people could talk about things that mattered in relation to literature. You know, The Guardian, you know, Slate.com, Salon, mm. there were so many places, but it felt like in, um, that with African literature, we were kind of missing that type of space. So that was one thing, but then secondly, I wasn't interested in simply reproducing existing models. Mm -hmm. I felt like we needed a space where we could, on a very basic level, have fun with African literature. Because mm -hmm. one thing I found tiring was the way in which African literature was kind of um, circulated within a discourse of erudition, right? Mm -hmm. So you think of African literature as something that you know you study in the classroom, something that talks about very serious, sad issues, you know, um, things that, that scholars cared about or that teachers cared about, you know, but if you wanted to have fun, you can read your J.K. Rowling's and you can read, you know, your fun Western fiction. But then when you wanted to learn serious things about the world, you read African literature. So I wanted to kind of break away from that discourse and created this space where people could actually just enjoy and have fun and be silly with African fiction. And Brittle Paper is kind of of that cross between, you know, um, substantive literary discourse and a kind of culture mm. of delight and fun. Mm. So you've spoken about um, changing the way that we would take it, we were consuming African literature. Um, but you've also quite often spoken about the ways in which you feel like that translates into the marketing and the way people write about African literature and use the example of two blurbs. One is an African writer and one is not, and the vast difference in that. Can you just tell us a little bit more about, can we expand a little bit more about the idea of changing the way that people write and the way that people consume African literature? Right. The work of a critic, I think, is not simply to evaluate a book and tell us whether it's good or it's not good. The work of a critic many times is to kind of give us a point of entry into a text. Mm. So it's very important that critics are careful about the terms on which they are inviting readers to encounter a particular book. So if I'm read, if I'm you know talking about a book like um, Lolash Shunayin's um, the Secret Lives of mm. Baba, Segi's Wife, right? And I say that this is a book that gives us a searing look at polygamy, mm. right? It's completely different <laughs> from... <laughs> which is, yes, polygamy is the context of the novel, but it's actually a hilarious, funny novel. Yes. About a girl, a woman who is memorable as a character yes. because there's so much about her that you connect with, right? But so, as opposed to say you describe the book as this kind of, you know, um, funny exploration of, you know, um, modern Nigerian relationships, something like that, right? So where the ways that we talk about African novels mm. is very theme message driven yes. right it's about yes. how does this text represent racism how does it explore corruption yes. how does it highlight um the child soldier syndrome as opposed to what does the text 
do for the reader in mm. a sense of how can a reader encounter this text from a place mm. of intimacy and delight mm. you know and 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 i think that the fault is not partly with critics is also partly with the publishing industry is also partly with the writers themselves yes. and it's also partly tied to a long <coughs> tradition mm. of african novels mm. being able to command attention mm. in a global literary market unless it presents itself as being some kind of native informant mm. telling you something grand about the african world Speaking about this long history of the African novel having been, or the African writer having been treated and treating themselves in a certain way, you wrote, I don't think that controversial is quite the right word, but it's, it's been a, a long day and my English is sort of running out, but <laughs> there's, a, there's a, an essay that you wrote um, and in, in which you, for example, were speaking about people referred to as the gods of African <laughs> literature. Um, and basically there will be no holy cows. <laughs> But one of the propositions that you really question in that in that essay is Achebe's proposition of education as a teacher, right? Mm -hmm. This representation of this novelist as a teacher. Mm -hmm. And you then expand on why you find this so problematic. Um, I'm curious to just pick your mind about why that particularly stood out for you, why, why you felt that it was so important to comment on this notion of teacher as, as of writer as teacher and of students being the reader. I mean, it, it is absurd in some sense to me, right? That a fiction, a fictional work recommends itself primarily on the basis of its capacity to teach you something. Mm. I, I mean, I think s storytelling is, is, is something that you cannot reduce in that way. Mm. And Achibu is, he loves to cite African folk tales as justification mm. because you know African tales always end with some kind of didactic <laughs> ending mm. but I mean I have to say that that's not entirely an accurate picture mm. because African folk tales also happen to, to be absolutely exciting mm. and some of them are deliciously ridiculous and fun and then you can tell that the creators of this form the most important goal is to delight the reader. Yes. Teaching is some kind of byproduct. If it happens, fine. If it doesn't happen, fine. So this idea that, you know, the African writer modeling the African folktale teller positions him or herself as a, as a kind of didactic pedagogical figure to me is very odd mm. and I mean and, and just the condescension of thinking of the reader as a student mm. thinking of the reader as somebody who is never enough in themselves you know I mean in Africa in a certain kind of old African literary discourse mm. you always encounter the broken um, reader the derailed reader the mad reader mm. the the sad reader who these writers have position themselves as wanting to save, wanting to correct. And, and like this, there's something disturbing about the incapacity to see the reader as somebody who, you know, is enough in themselves. And I also find it a little dis 
ingenuous that you have a literary discourse mm. that justifies its existence on the basis of a broken reader. That's so what happens when what happens to African literature when we don't have any broken readers to repair mm. anymore? Can we mm. imagine an African literary discourse that is kind of like post-suffering, joy-centered African literature? So you've spoken about this this idea of what happens when readers themselves want to start thinking about a utopia outside of of this concept of an Africa that is riddled with all of the struggles or an Africa that is constantly having to teach you about polygamy or difficult relationships or difficult marriages. And it makes me think of Kolega Putuma because it also makes me think of the ways in which people sort of take in our art and it's something we'll expand on. But she says, how come when you ask black people about their childhoods, you never want to know about the joy, the happiness, the playing. You know, the the times in which we, my cousins and I would huddle together and we'd have, and I think some of that is also our own reproduction. Some of that is just us reproducing the ways in which the African novel must look like, you know? And so there's also a problem with the ways in which people talk about Africa and talk about African literature, right? And almost treat it as this anthropological study mm -hmm. and not really as an art form that's quite rigorous, that's quite interesting, you know? And how do you think that we need to engage differently with African literature? Does it, does it come into the books that we're writing? Is it the way that the books are published? Is it the people who get an audience? How can we engage with African literature in ways that are delightful or joyful? I think... Um, it is being open to the idea that a literary, any kind of literary discourse is as great as it is rich mm. and heterogeneous. Yes. Right. That too, it's all well and good, you know, for people to, um, to write, um, to engage social issues, right? There's nothing mm. wrong with that, right? But it's also good for us to make sure that we create these spaces where people who want to do something different can do it mm. and have their books circulate in ways that they need to, right? And I mean, I've seen this in Brittle Paper where we've shadowed kind of mentored <coughs> writers from when they started out as unknown writers to when, you know, they become big time. Mm. There is a a dramatic shift from the way they write mm. when they started out with us you know they would explore the experimental and in the moment they get that that big publishing deal mm. what comes out is just this strangely like just cookie cutter novel that you've read a million times before that's what there is this fear that if i don't write a novel that is recognizably african mm based on the parameters that global publishing has defined as what African is, mm. then my work is literally not going to be able to circulate. So how can we create a situation where people who choose to write all kinds of different things will be able to have their work circulate? Mm. And to me, a big part of that is kind of making sure that we invest in the infrastructure of publishing, mm. right? So that different kinds of voices can be given a space to thrive. And also, I think it, it's it's also a thing with changing the taste of readers. Oh, actually, I take that back. It's kind of of, of imagining a literary discourse mm. that 
is not intimidated by being driven by the reader's taste, right? In the sense that African writers have a very eclectic taste, mm. and it's actually unique, right? Because in um, in Western um, publishing um, scene, there's a way that readers tend to read what they like. Yes. Right? They exist yes. in these generic yes. silos, yes. right? But I don't know if it's something to do with the way that we come to reading. Our tastes can be so diverse in the sense that, you know, you're consuming highbrow literary fiction, but you're also reading your James Hardley Chase, right? And that's so there's a way that the African reader is actually a pretty exciting reader, right? And that's so I would imagine a literary discourse where we let this reader's taste and desires kind of fuel the ways that we organize books and talk about them. Um, you know, because many times, you know, when people want to, you know, put their head down and read a fun book, they go to the West, right? They, they go to the Western archive, right? Mm -hmm. And then when they want to read something, you know, hard, and they come to African literature. Yes. In fact, they call it African literature. You know, mm -hmm. I have kids that, that they will tell you that, oh, yeah, 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 you know, um, things fall apart, you know, now is African literature. Mm. I think when they say it, it's as if, yes, it's for the hallowed gods. Mm. But, you know, when I want to have fun, yeah. I go and read my Harry Potter mm. and I go and read my Hunger Games, you know. Mm. You've spoken about an investment in the infrastructure of publishing, but I think we've also seen with mediums like Bristol Paper, for example, or the number of self published authors that we've seen who've gone on to do really well that there is a shift and that there is a need to change the way that we publish books and the way that we market books published by African authors mm. um, so for you what would that investment look like in sort of rethinking the way that we publish books because the current model is just not working I mean I think you know um, print culture is, 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 is suffering everywhere mm. in more in in some areas than others um on the continent specifically print culture is in a very bad place um really 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 bad place so i would say that i see kind of um the digital context mm -hmm. as mm -hmm. holding very interesting possibilities for publishing mm -hmm. um in the sense that it's relatively cheaper to assemble kind of mm. the whole gamut of publishing, mm. um, of the publishing um, process from um, editors to critics and also to means of circulation. Mm. So mm. I would say that since our print publishing is already kind of in a dismal yes. position, and this is I'm talking across the continent because even mm. South Africa where it looks like, you know, a lot of publishing is happening 99% mm. of the publishing is not literary yes. and even an infinitesimal part of that literary mm. publishing is being done by black writers yeah right so South Africa might seem to have a thriving mm. print publishing industry but it actually doesn't isn't so I would say I see the future as kind of an investment in um, in digital publishing and also just in creating a wide-ranging avenues yes. of literary discourse so it's not just publishing right but it's things like prizes 
surprises with actual real yes. material consequences. So it's not like the Nigerian Literary Prize where you win $100,000 and it's just a check. It means nothing. <laughs> why do you have the shock on your face? <laughs> this is why there was a there was an essay floating around recently. Mm-hmm. I just I hadn't had a chance to read it where somebody who's a writer was really mm-hmm. criticizing these literary awards, you know, because what do they bring? Like material yeah. things, what do they bring? Yeah, literally just a check. Somebody and Nigerian literary prize is, is the most absurd because it's Africa's richest prize. It's a hundred thousand dollars. That you don't get. That you get. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, so they write you a check, that's it. Okay. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean all the people who have won that prize, mm-hmm. nobody hears about them. Mm. It, it doesn't translate into industry yes. clout. Yes. Does that make sense? Yes. If you win the booker, it changes everything. You begin to circulate in the world in a completely different way. Yeah. We don't have prizes mm. that can do that. that it, they actually industry engines like yes. that can have real material effects in the way that books are circulating and the way that books are accruing cultural mm. value and mm. capital so we need that and we need um we need a very developed critical um industry mm. because the new york times the guardians literary the guardians of the world Mm. do not do right by our books at all no right they, they, they have zero concept on how to name yes. what is interesting yes. and valuable about yes. our book yes. so we need spaces like that machineries like that mm. that can kind of push our books globally mm. on our own terms Right mm-hmm. on terms that make our literature visible mm-hmm. and make the value of our literature visible. Speaking of visibility, uh, we've had we've had some. F- I want to say some. We've had some very popular people almost giving being given credits for popularizing African literature. So mm-hmm. there've been collaborations, for example, with with big stars that have been seen to be popularizing mm-hmm. literature. So I mean there was there was an event where there was an occasion where Beyonce, you know, was referred to almost shining a light on on Chimamanda Adichie, which I thought was interesting, you know, and, mm-hmm. and that same sort of sentiment was then carried on mm-hmm. when Warson Shire appeared on Lemonade, you know, and it wasn't seen as this collaborative effort where people were bringing the equal ways of their work, yeah. right? Um, and in an age where African literature is beginning to gain a lot of traction, a lot of interest with these kinds of collaborations, there's still this almost strange way of interpreting those relationships mm-hmm. as though they are shining a light on us as opposed to it being a collaborative effort or us shining a light on them and bringing newfound ideas, newfound mm-hmm. ways of interpreting that. And I really want to get your opinion on why you believe that African literature was shining a light on Beyonce and not the other way around. I think that it's very, it, it feels very um, obvious to me mm. um, because Lemonade aesthetically draws a lot from Wasson Shire's work. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's not as if you can tell that Beyonce is working within an aesthetics that Shire created, right? It's not just the poetry, mm. the very tenure mm. of the poetry 
right the ways that it, it dissects a certain type of like you know um broken intimacy right that shows itself at the level of the body at the level of history like this is all stuff that shire has been working with and thinking through with her poetry in the sense that she made that project but yes. somehow it's like you know that's that that's that, um um like her presence in the work is overshadowed by saying that you know Beyonce saved her from obscurity yes. right because everything is not about visibility right it's also about the transformative power of her work mm. right in a sense that her work transforms Beyonce's work right um, even though she might not have had the visibility that she had before but I think that another way that you see this kind of um, power differential between the West and places like Africa when it comes to cultural objects mm. is also in this kind of um, intentional attempts to erase Yes. Right? Yes. African influences in cultural forms. The most absurd example to me is Marlon James's um, Black um, Leopard Red Wolf. I mean, I don't know how much else James can tell the world that that project is African. Mm. That it is based on his extensive research on medieval African worlds. Mm. Mm. That he was that he had studied his tutuola, Amos tutuola, a lot. Mm. And that many of the creatures he created was a homage to tutuola. Mm. The New York Times review of that book mm. does not mention one African influence of that book. Mm. The, and, and, and I mean, this guy mentions everything from Hieronymus Bosch, mm. Marquez, Avengers, okay? <laughs> I mean, like um, George Martin, yeah. you would think that this book mm. had nothing to do with African literature. Mm. That the, the rich aesthetic formal legacy that this book is built on all of a sudden is erased and disappears completely in the mm. circulation of this text within mm. the West. Right? And that's, I mean, and that, that's why, though, we need to be able to create our own global engines mm. for circulating ideas about mm. our literature. Speaking of this developing our own global engine, you've spoken about this development of a critical industry. And I think that's something that we're still struggling with because we find it difficult to write critically about each other in ways that are still loving and that are still tender and that are not destructive and that's something that i've found bristle paper to be able to do very well and so my question is how do you believe that we go about this creation or this development of a critical industry that seeks to build and not to destroy yeah i mean the the goal is to create a critical industry that is affirmative right and productive in the sense that critiquing a text or writing about a text mm. is about assembling information around that text mm. or making the value of that text legible within the african literary archive it has nothing to do with 
whether you like this novel or you don't like the novel that's a me as the job my job as a critic is not to say whether i like a book or i don't or whether a book is bad or it's not mm. i consider my work as a critic done if i'm able to create significant important information around a book right and this is tied to me to the way i look at an at a canon right a canon is not just a list of books mm. a canon is a very special type of list is a list where each text in the list can communicate what is great about it in relation to another text on the list, right? So for example, when I talk about Marlon James's Black Leopard Red Wolf, right, it's not a matter of whether the book was hard to read, it was annoying, I didn't like it. It's about how can I show you this text in relation to other texts within the literary canon how can i ask quest interesting questions about the text how can i produce this a a a, a set of um um you know interesting information around the text and so a critical industry that is focused on building is one that is focused on expanding and enriching an archive mm. right as supposed to simply, I don't know, just tearing a text down or saying yes. whether, you know, I mean, really, honestly, nobody cares. But what <laughs> I think is important for posterity is this kind of um, knowledge that we are assembling around our literary text. That's what's going to be important, right, mm. for the future. So you talk about this assembling of knowledge around literary texts and the creation of a canon. It's a question that we often come up with just about the kind of work that you create and want to, for example, have on the podcast because you want to believe that you're creating this mm-hmm. canon. And so my question is for you, what are the, some of the deliberate ways that you go about in your own quest to create this kind of canon and to drive this kind of knowledge base that exists around around the work of, of African writers? One way I think is is this really simple and basic act of curation, right? So to think of yourself, which is what you also do at um chicken it is to is to kind of to to highlight a set of texts through the year right um that you think that people should pay attention to for us at brittle paper we also do things like um things as simple as creating lists right yes. so for example instead of saying that um mariama bar's so long a letter you see novel about um I don't know, is a novel that explores um, female oppression, <laughs> right? How about you assemble the text, you kind of create a list of text about, you know, five, five novels by African women that explore powerful female friendships, which is actually what? So long a letter is about is yes. this really amazing relationship she has with this woman that literally every woman in the world yes. has a friend like that who you guys have been through everything together but somehow <laughs> your choices in lives mm. have been different mm. you know that so how about like you know begin to reorganize the archives mm. in ways that makes it more legible to people yes. so that you know you can say you know five novels about heartbreak 
books, mm. right? Mm. You know, five novels that talk about, you know, um, um, you know, things that interesting ways of putting text together that readers are going to find intriguing, but kind of defamiliarizes the yes. text to them and show them that, you know, that look, this story speaks to um, very real and intimate aspects of their lives, you know, and that it's not just that these texts aren't just about, you know, um, um, checking the list on, um, on what do you call it, um, on hot button issues. Mm. Because we're so much more than that, and in many ways, African literature is a tool for us to examine the full spectrum of who we are outside of all of the tick boxes that we have, mm -hmm. you know, the famine, the starvation, the difficulties, the poor governance, the corruption, yeah. and, 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 right? Um, I think we've, we've got that. We've got it down to a T, you know, we've... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> we we know we know how to rise about African corruption. Problems. You know, we've we've got it down to <laughs> Um You also have something quite interesting at at the Brittle Paper, and it's called it's the African Literary Person of the Year. Yeah. Um, and what's interesting is a number of the winners have been black women. They all of them black being black women, women actually. Mm -hmm. All of them have been black women, but black women who are slaying, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so my question is, has that been intentional on your part to have? this continuous list of black women as African literary persons of the year. And what's informed that? Because, I mean, it's quite interesting because we often, when we think of African literature, people will want to talk about your Wole Soingas, your Chinuas, you know? Mm -hmm. the, the, when people think of the gods of African yeah. literature, the gods happen to be men. They, they happen are. to be the fathers, mm -hmm. you know? So I found that to be very interesting, the, <laughs> that trend of African literary people being black women. Well, that's something that we never planned mm. at all. We give people, we um, award um, that category based on what people are doing in the industry. Mm. It's kind of an industry focused award that looks at um, how people are building infrastructures that have been key to building the industry. Um, and it just so happens that right now as we speak, African women are the ones really I mean, holding down the fort in mm. different aspects of the industry. Um, so that's one thing. But another thing that is curious is actually is also that even in the literary side of things, it's also being dominated by African women. Yes. I mean, um, Salman Rushdie's review of Namwali Serpel's um, Old Drift, which was published in March, came out and he said that African women are coming, that African women are dominating the literary field. Mm -hmm. <coughs> in 2014 or so, showing we actually have the video on Brittle Paper, had a Guardian video where he says that the women are kicking the asses of the men. So this is something that has actually mm -hmm. been talked about. But it's just that now it's becoming the case that all the novelists making waves globally are women. Yes. And that all the, the kind of the people committed to doing industry things mm. are women. Lola, um, in fact, Tando is an exception. Yes. yes. He is an amazing exception to see. Because it almost, it almost feels as if, you know, when you look, women are the ones doing the heavy lifting. 
right industry wise but you know the reason why i i um why i embrace the tr the trend is because historically african literature has been a boys club yes and i mean we've had horror stories of what women like Buchi Mecheta have experienced in an industry mm. that was exclusively cultishly held down by men right in fact there is this um and i can send it to you this professor um what's her name neomaka did mm. this beautiful piece where she does a survey of reviews by african male critic of women's novel the condescending yes. like characters will be critiqued yes. because they are too gossipy and they are talkative right characters will be critiqued because they are too wild and sexually free mm. right so this is like the 60s the 70s the 80s and so it, 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 it's refreshing to see in a in a kind of discursive field where you know it's not just that men have done have um have been dominating but that women have not been treated you know exceptionally um nicely mm. it's good to see that you know women for some reason are the ones thriving now are the ones you know writing all the amazing books and are the ones kind of holding power within the industry I don't exactly know why you know black girl magic <laughs> yeah, but I think you know I celebrate mm, it it's beautiful um, you know and I I love it so you're talking about um Bucci Emeta, whose birthday it was yes. this past this yes. past week, mm -hmm. um, and I think her daughter wrote something so beautiful on on Twitter. And this is the power of social media that's just mm -hmm. made the world so much smaller. Yeah. Um, just about how Bucci was left alone in the UK, and she the the process of what it means to yeah. be a woman writing mm -hmm. under those kinds of conditions yeah. was quite interesting. Uh, there's a number of, of black women whose work you've read and whose work has resonated with you and maybe directed you in a certain path. And I'm interested to know, who, A, who those women were, those black women writers who changed the way that you read books, the way that you interacted with novels. But also, you've probably had a chance to revisit some of their work and what are some of the revisions that you've had now with somebody who interacts with literature in a completely different way to how you were when you initially read it? Yeah, I would say that um, that I, I have, to be honest, been more inspired by mm. my contemporaries. Okay. Right? And I've also been inspired by these pioneers mm. because I realize how difficult it was right and the barriers that they had to break in order for them to create the space where we can actually do what we are doing today um and in a way their work shows me just how difficult and problematic a space they occupied yeah. like Buchi Mecheta is known to have said that you know um her feminism is feminism with a small f you know and that there's a sense in which, you know, women's writings were focused on, 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 on the kind of small domestic lives of women characters. So the Achibes of the world would write their grand historic 
mm. epics and then women could write about barrenness and infertility and you know wife beating and things like that right you know that that's so you know that that while i kind of see the ways that they were able to kind to forge a path even if it was sort of modest but the work that they did is absolutely essential to the work that you know that women writers today are now doing um and and um of course you know writers like flora Wapa, you know um Maria Maba, mm. Bucci and Mecheta, of course, they are very, very extremely important to the kind of um, posture that I bring to my work. Mm. But I would say that in terms of 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 um, of writers that really inspire me mm. today, it'll have to be my contemporaries, writers like Enedi Okorafo, mm. and the ways that she has refused to accept the terms of storytelling so that she's been able to create this completely new way of imagining African um, cultural and literary archives and um, people like that inspire me to no end. So who else are some of the contemporaries? I find that I found it very interesting that you feel that your contemporaries have been because in many ways some writers feel a sense of competition mm -hmm. with their contemporaries and it's it's reflected in the ways in which they then interact with their contemporaries. So you ask somebody, Oh, what are you reading now? Oh, oh I don't read contemporary work, I read classics. You know, it's, it's almost an attitude of condensation in the mm -hmm. way that people approach their contemporaries. So I find it very interesting that you draw so much inspiration from your contemporaries. And outside of, of issues of style and theme, what else particularly is so inspiring about the ways in which your contemporaries are going about navigating the literary space, but also the kind of work that they're producing that stands out so strongly for you? I mean, I think it's what I will call um, a kind of epistemic disobedience mm. or resistance that I find in lots of this work where they just, they give zero fucks mm. and they are just going to, 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 to completely change the terms in which we tell stories, the terms in which we um, imagine worlds. Another person I love dearly is um, Panache Chigumatsi. Yes. I mean, this bones shall rise. Is I mean, it's it's a text that when you read, it completely upends everything you know mm. about how to tell national histories, how to tell account for women's histories within national histories. Mm. Right. It just it changes everything you know about what counts as appropriate historical knowledge or not. Mm. You know? That's so that kind of the kind of audaciousness mm. of these writings to me just blows me away because I as somebody who studies the history and evolution of forms, mm. I, I know how gradual those types of things can be. But with these writers, they are just taking on this kind of old, tired structures and completely breaking them down. Um, what's her name? Um, oh my God, she's going to kill me. Um, Novoyo Chuma, you know, House of Stone, is another very audacious take on 
a history of violence that yes. she manages almost to kind of tell in this just hilarious funny amazing character mm. you know so i don't know I, I just i am i am intrigued by their their by their inventiveness let me call it that by their inventiveness by their just aggressively seeking out new ways to tell our stories mm. i think that is you know that's remarkable Speaking of new ways to tell our stories, there's a practice that you've criticized um, and it speaks to the, to the ways in which people tell our stories and you've spoken about this tethering of creative practice to dysfunction as something that almost inhibits us being able to tell our stories in new ways. What do you mean by that? I mean like when we have to, when we can only, when we can only justify literary practice on dysfunctionality mm. that's just very limiting mm. you know because dysfunction is never the whole story yes. right it's the problem i have with um Ungugi's decolonizing the mind mm. like i'm sorry africans were not cultural schizophrenics yes you know, Africans were not like culturally, mentally, psychically, cognitively broken people. Mm. Just because, you know, colonialism was was a horrible thing and it did lots of things. Mm. But to then create this continent full <laughs> of people, yes. you know, th th that mm. to me is not the whole story because every day there were africans who were doing interesting things who were you know creating things who were were kind of you know actively finding new ways to live their lives and represent their world but so when we when we use dysfunction as a starting point it is, it, it, it 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 prevents us from acknowledging the creativities you know that was taking place even within the context mm. of that dysfunction that so we have to find another starting point that allows us to acknowledge the dysfunctions that are there but that also allows us to name the joys and the creativity and the inventions that were also there speaking of the joys and the creativities it's almost the end well we were two two-thirds in of 2019 and it's been quite an exciting literary year you know so what have been some of the books that you've really enjoyed in 2019 and what are some of the books that you're looking forward to as the year as the year progresses i mean i was particularly moved by nedukurafo's um broken places outer spaces i could never tell the mm. right order her memoir you know, because I think um, for somebody who has always kind of presented this really powerful persona, and she is a very powerful person, woman, you know, to kind of, of, of now go back and tell this story of just immense vulnerability, you know, I, find, I, I found it surprising and inspiring. Mm -hmm. um, I am looking forward to reading... Um, Maza Mengiste's The Shadow King okay. um, because there's been a ton of historical fiction again 99% by African women yes um, Petina Gapas um, Out of the Light is Shining Darkness also another historical fiction um, 
I think one of the stories that has sort of blindsided me, to be honest, is Namwali Sepa's Old Drift, mm. right? Just epic and grand and ambitious and genre bending, you know, um, and that's a text that I haven't read yet, but that I am looking forward to reading. Um, so Bristol Paper um, has these awards that you give us. Mm -hmm. What is the aim of, of these awards? You've just spoken about, we had an interesting conversation about what what literary awards do and what mm -hmm. we hope. What do you hope that the Bristol Paper Awards will do? I think I want to, or rather we would like to, to make people realize the immense treasure we have in digital publishing mm. Mm. and and this is a blind spot that you find globally mm. it's not just an african thing is that when we um institutional things like prizes are still wires to books mm. right which is odd to me and especially in a place like africa where we have where the publishing the print publishing industry is dismal most of the new interest in writing happening is actually being published digital oh, yeah. first, right? But so why aren't we celebrating writing that has never had a life in print and that has simply been published online, right? So that for us is the goal, that we can find a way where we can, we can reward these writers who are kind of you know finding new interesting ways to yes. leverage the digital space for literary work and also social media you know like in at brittle paper we don't find social media to be a scandalous thing <laughs> we don't louder for the people at the back because wow there's a sense of almost like literary superiority yes like yes. Uh, you know, we're still publishing books. Yeah. You know, people should read and stop mm -hmm. tweeting. Mm -hmm. it's, it's quite interesting in terms mm -hmm. of... Darling, I mean, tweets have changed the world in ways that I don't think many books would ever dream to. And it's not as if I'm saying that we should replace mm. digital-first writing mm. with print, but it's just that it's already a competing media context. Yes. It, it's it, The reason why we are not focusing on it is because we are in some kind of weird denial. Shailja Patel's post-colonial tweets in response to Chimamanda Adichie's statement about post-colonial theory being something that, you know, mm. um, professors invented to get jobs, right? And she wrote this set of, I think, 14 tweets that kind of gives a Marxist feminist account of post-colonial theory was published was republished on brittle paper and within four days had 60,000 views I remember those tweets like right I mean that, that in the way that in 14 tweets she names tells you what exactly is essential about post-colonial theory as a framework right mm. and that's so but to me i feel like but there's no space to reward her mm. for what those tweets did because it's mm. not an essay on the atlantic on the new yorker right so it hasn't well, been retweeted or it, it hasn't been on oprah's um thank you. book club list you know you know yeah. so what we did i mean she sent in those tweets as part of her nomination nominating herself mm. and 
she ended up winning that category. And to me, you know, that's that is powerful. Awesome. Mm. I love that. And I think that we need kind of more experimental institutional spaces that allows us to figure out what exactly what kinds of value we are going to ascribe to this tremendously powerful work that is mm. being created in spaces outside of print. In Lives of Spaces Outside of Print, um, Brittle Papers published quite a few anthologies since 2016. Um, there was We Are the Flowers, We Are Flowers, quite a few of them that were, and they have very different themes as well. So how do you go about the process of selecting the work that gets published, but also choosing the themes? They, they're very different, but they're also very context and very in keeping with what's happening at the time. Yes. We Are Flowers is one such example. Mm -hmm. Yes, so we work with, um, with editors um, and our deputy editor, Oturi, Otosiriese is the one who typically leads these um, collaborations. And um, he works with the um, editor to make sure that this and um, the selected works mm. are very good, um, not only in terms of quality, but that you know they are great and provocative and that they can move people to ask the kinds of questions that mm. they need to. Um, so some of the anthologies we've kind of pushed originally by ourselves. But what has happened in the last few years is that people are coming, are approaching us and saying, look, I have an idea for an anthology. Would you guys kind of work um, with uh. us and collaborate with us and give us a space where we can kind of, you know, publish it. And, and we've been doing more of that and it's really exciting because it allows us to circulate text that typically will not necessarily find its way, you know, within kind of the traditional publishing yeah. circuits. I mean, it's, it's a reason why Brittle Paper has come to be seen as a kind of bastion for queer writing, yeah. right? Because we started publishing queer writing long before anybody started. The Nigerian poet, um, Oriogun, who is now at Harvard, published with us first, mm. right? And, and, and I mean, and, and that has kind of been one aspect of our work that we love, that we cherish, and that we find endlessly rewarding. That Brittle Paper is an open and safe space for queer writers to explore any kind of question regarding queer culture. So, we've spoken a lot about Brittle Paper, which is amazing, and what, what's next we will discuss, but um, what's next for you? You just you finished your PhD. You're in the process of turning that work into a novel, a book, into a book, into a book. <laughs> sorry, um, and I'm really curious about what it, it's like to be on the other side. So, as somebody who consumes a lot of literature, you teach literature, you study it critically. You're now in the process of turning this work into a book, and really, what is it like to now straddle the other side of? I think it's exciting, you know, um, it's exciting. Just crafting the book is, has been an exciting journey and I say crafting because that's what it is. Yes. You know, I've been in the industry long enough 
mm. to know the kind of book I want to write. Yes. You know, um, I am an academic, but I'm also a literary blogger. So there's a way that <laughs> you know. Mm my sensibilities and mm. the way i ask questions is very much inspired by these two different worlds mm. so that i know the, the specific kind of book i want to write and a book that is that is making interventions in a very specific way i mean i could write a kind of good old you know typical scholarly text mm. on african literature that simply just you know finds a paradigm you know, it may be, I don't know, post-colonial or feminist and just kind of slap it on a particular, not very research um, period in African mm, literature. Mm. That's not what I want to do. Mm. For me, the unique perspective I have and position I have within the kind of popular literary sphere has kind of made me realize even much more mm. the ways that things need to change mm. on an epistemic level in the sense that you know the way we talk about storytelling and the way we talk about um texts you know from the level of what it means to be a character yes right see so that how we define a character or how we define what a setting does is still very much eurocentric and it's not to see those paradigms are not ba are bad it's just that they were not like if they're not cut like one size fit all right the two we have to begin to kind of of reshape these categories in ways that makes our texts and our archives more legible so mm -hmm. yeah so that's why i'm kind of taking my time to put together this book that i hope will speak to these different concerns and this can this seemingly different <laughs> worlds of like popular yes, you know, literary yes. discourse and academic literary discourse that I inhabit. And can you give us a sneak peek of what your book is about? <laughs> just to tantalize our listeners. <laughs> just a sneak peek. One or two lines. <laughs> <laughs> My book um, is kind of experimental genealogy of the African novel. Okay. It's based on the assumption that we should pretend for a second mm. that the novel was not invented in Europe. Mm. Okay. And so instead of tracing the genealogy of the African novel as this thing that was invented by Europe and then came to Africa and then just kind of picked up local color, <laughs> right? What if we trace the African novel from within the African mm. literary archive itself? So what if we started from, you know, 16th century mm. Ethiopian hagiographic texts? Yes. What if we started from Ifa divinatory corpus? What if we started from kind of old epics like the um, Ozidi saga, Sunjiata, or 17th century Swahili poetry. Mm. What if we started from there, there. Mm. and then excavated this literary archive and isolated forms that we can then bring into the contemporary moment and begin to use to explain why African novels are different? Yes. Why they are weird in this cool way in which they are weird? Mm. Why they are interesting and they are doing all these things that 
that are just that seems strange yeah. because we keep trying to explain it in relationship to mm. the European invention of the form all of a sudden we begin to see how these novels are much more exciting and much more interesting and much more dynamic than we've imagined them to be the title of my book is Forest Imaginaries How African Novels Think mm. We can't wait. We can't wait. <laughs> Thank you so much for what's really been such a brilliant, insightful interview. Um, it's so funny because the other day, somebody said that we often sound like we're fangirling when we speak to, to writers on the podcast. And I think so much of what you've spoken about speaks to that, that inability to critically engage in ways that are not destructive with people whose work we enjoy. So, I mean, I just want to close off with you just telling us about what kind of future you hope for, for, um, for rights, for, for your, for the Bristle paper, but also for African writing in general. What kind of, what is it that you are hoping for in doing this project? What does the future look like? I mean, I'm looking for, you know, I'm looking forward to a future in which we in which we we control the terms on which mm. our literature is defined yes you know yes and, <laughs> and that, i mean and all the systemic yes. and infrastructural evolution or changes or transformations that have to to kind of create that and make it possible mm. um i would like a world in which you know you don't need to be reviewed on the New York Times for your book to be able to actually circulate globally, right? Um, they're actually African spaces, you know, that mm. are that powerful, you know? I would like a world in which um, we have more literary festivals mm. on the continent, you know, where we don't have to, you know, go to Europe and, you know, um, play to this exotic sizing game you know and just exist in spaces where you feel out of joints and out of sorts um in spaces where you struggle to find the language to articulate what your work is or what it does it would mm. be nice to have more arcade festivals mm. more abantu festivals um it'll be nice to have you know a space where we are able to leverage digital technology so we want more cheeky natives you know mm. we want more um we want more bookstagrammers yeah. you know working yes. in africa we want more brittle papers right just a really rich and vibrant space mm. and also to be honest when you think about literature within social media right and i mean literature not just literary discourse but the ways that social media is opening up new ways of telling stories. Mm. So Twitter stories, you know, um, um, Twitter stories, Facebook memoirs, things like that, right? We live at the cusp of a kind of grand literary shift where mm. everything right now is up for grabs, yes. right? Yes. The Europeans invented the novel. Mm. We don't know who is going to invent the next digital narrative yes. right that so this is a playing field where I'm seeing African writers kind of really explore all kinds of experimental mm. narratives using social media I already see it mm. so my goal is that I'm 
wishing for a future in which whatever the kind of literary equivalent of the novel is within the digital space, mm. that it's one that the continent, you know, will have mm. kind of um, been the, um, the incubating space for. And with that very powerful note, I'm going to end our podcast, but I really want to say a very, very big thank you to Dr. Adora Lines. It's important for us to use people's titles. Um, for really the amazing work that Brittle Paper does, um, where I think we don't often take time to just take stock of the kind of work that we're doing and we always hope for these very big big moments that we'll celebrate but so much of the work and so much of the change is in the little everyday things yes. that that the spaces that we create the platforms that we give to people so i'm quite excited for your for your new work we wish you all the best Thank as you. bristle paper grows from strength to strength we can only imagine what lies ahead in the future as we reimagine ourselves and reimagine the way we speak about ourselves, the ways we write about ourselves, the way we portray ourselves in in our books as well, in our writing. So thank you once again. Thanks to you for taking the time out um, to chat with me. Thank you very much.